Hey Groovers, Tim and Kurt here. We are republishing one of our favorite episodes because it is related to our upcoming 100th episode celebration. Woohoo! This episode that you're going to listen to is first published in September of 2018 and continues to rank as one of our most downloaded episodes. Of course, this episode that we're talking about is Annie Duke, best-selling author of Thinking in Bets and... Annie is going to be one of our featured guests at our 100th episode extravaganza. Not only are we having Annie as a guest, but we are also having the world-renowned Lila Gleitman, who was the pioneer of today's modern research in linguistics. And in addition to those two, yes, we have even more. Yes. We will be having a super secret surprise guest as yes. part of the show. Woo. All right. This special podcast event is taking place on the evening of October 17th in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania Academy for Fine Arts. So if you're in the Philly area or you're traveling there on October 17th, you can sign up to join us live at the Behavioral Grooves meetup link that can be found in the show notes. It's going to be a great event, a great evening, food, drink, great conversation, and fun. I guarantee it's going to be fun. Space is limited. I guarantee space is very limited, so sign up now. Now, if you cannot make it out to Philadelphia, we have put in place a way for you to still be part of this special event. It is going to be live streamed. We are going to have more information about how you get that live stream available on the Behavioral Grooves website in the upcoming weeks. And we'll keep you informed, but look out to www.behavioralgrooves.com for more information. And of course, of course, thank you very much for being supporters of Behavioral Grooves. We are doing this for you, the listeners and the community that we are building. And we have a very special thank you for people who will be coming to the event or listening or just those who share this information out there in the general public. We, we really, really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Wow, we said that together. <laughs> so with that, listen to our pre-recorded episode with Annie Duke from 2018 and get excited about seeing her live on October 17th. Welcome to the Behavior Grooves Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. Okay, so typically we talk about our sponsors at this point, but today, in honor of our guest, we're going to do two things differently. First, Tim, I'm going to wager that we can get over 60% of the people listening to this podcast to forward it to a friend. Okay. They just have to forward it to one really cool and intellectual friend, someone that they think might find our witty banter and deep insights interesting. Oh, I'll take that bet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. So you're going to take the over 60% of the people will forward this. I'll take the under. Right, because I have faith in our listeners and how wonderful they are and how they will do this. I still have faith. I just have 
a little less faith. Sixty <laughs> percent and below faith, right? That's right. I have a sixty percent and above faith. That's right. That. So okay. it's not that we're on different. We're not at odds. We're just different degrees. Oh, and we'll talk about that in this podcast yeah. too. All right. So the good. So, but the second part of our wager oh, yeah. is that whoever loses will pay that bet to the nonprofit foundation that our guest cited. It's called How I Decide. Mm. This is an organization that is dedicated to empowering kids to become better decision makers by creating innovative programs to develop their critical thinking, social, and emotional skills, kind of in line with what we're trying to do with behavioral groups. So listeners, you can find out more about this great program at www.howidecide.org. Okay, I'm in. All right. How about 100 bucks? 100 bucks sounds good. Now we just have to figure out how do we measure people <laughs> forwarding this on to a friend at 60% or more. So it's just a little wee bit of a problem. I think we're going to both end up making donations to How I Decide. And I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. It's good. All right, but on with the show. In this episode, both Tim and I were bubbling over because we got to interview Annie Duke, decision strategist, author, and former professional poker player who won the World Series of Poker Bracelet, was the winner of the 2004 Tournament of Champions, and the only woman to win the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. And while we didn't talk a lot about poker, no. we did talk about her recent book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And just a note for everybody, it is my personal favorite new book this year. So not only was the interview loads of fun, but it was also very insightful. We started out talking about the matrix and choosing the red or the blue pill. And then we kind of asked, well, do we look at life with as much accuracy as possible or do we cling to our illusions? Hmm. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Well, we tend to cling to our illusions. All right. Yeah. Then we morphed into a discussion about tribes and how tribes can be either positive or negative and how they offer us both distinctiveness and belongingness. We waded into a bit on how hard it is to break free from the tribe's influence, particularly because that influence is so hard for us to see. At least it's hard for us to see in ourselves. How we don't ask ourselves what is wrong with our own thinking, uh, which then led us into a conversation about learning pods and how can we transform the power of tribes to actually help us get a more accurate perspective on our own behaviors and thinking, making our decisions more in line with reality. Yeah, the learning Learning pods is such a cool concept and is a great way to overcome the fact that we are often blinded to our own biases. Mm. So the presence of others in the pod can help us in our decision making, kind of like taking the red pill. Mm. Uh, we meandered into probabilistic thinking, which is a cornerstone of Annie's thinking and bets model. Uh, then we started to rabbit hole a bit oh, okay. uh, about vodka. Vodka. Galileo. Galileo. Yes. And <laughs> researchers including Anna Dreber, Phil Tetlock, Barb Miller, Stuart Firestein, and the amazing Jonathan Haidt. Then we went deep into Annie's history with her mentor, Lila Gleitman, and uh, her work on syntactic bootstrapping with Donald Duck. Quack, quack. Yeah, man, that's a, such that's <laughs> such cool stuff. Um, and then uh, she shared a story about Lila and a broken down Honda Civic that influenced her life that I will remember, I think, for a very long time to come. It was a fantastic story. Yeah, and then, of course, we ended with talking about music. Jack White, Willie Nelson, Jonathan Richmond, Alex Chilton. Yeah, that voice of my baby, she wrote me a letter. He did that? 
Well, Joe Cocker covered it okay. years later, but that was uh, the box tops that did that originally. And that was Alex Chilton. That was Alex Chilton. Wow. Wow. We talked about, yeah, that. And, 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 and of course, then we even meandered off into the Violent Femmes, or I meandered off into the Violent Femmes and <laughs> talked about that. Uh, it was an eclectic mix of music just like the rest of the podcast. So listeners, uh, please note, this is a long session, but... I think it's well worth it. What do you say? Well worth it. So I'd say there's an 87 to 92% chance that this was the most engaging conversation we had. What do you think, Tim? I, I, I'm in the 87 to 92% range. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, hope, we hope you think so as well. Uh, so if you have to break this into two or three listens, do it. But for now, sit back. Grab a glass of your favorite beverage, whether that be vodka or soda. Or uh, both. Or, or, or together. <laughs> see where you're with, going with, with this. Ice. <laughs> On the rocks. All right. So, so grab your favorite drink, whatever that would be, and listen to our interview with author Annie Duke. Welcome, Annie Duke, to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Like, I'm, I'm super excited for this. Well, so are we. Well, so are we. We're going to start with a, a quick speed round just to kind of get okay. things going here. Uh, All righty. Okay. All right. Kurt, go. I've never dealt with pressure before. I may crack. <laughs> yeah. This, this should be a softball for you. All right. So okay. bicycle or unicycle, which do you prefer? Well, I mean, I prefer to, to ride a bike, but I mean, unicycle, obviously. I actually had one when I was growing up and I was pretty good at it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary? Oh, gosh. Well, so I would say it depends on whether it's for work or fun. Mm. So if it's for fun, definitely no itinerary in terms of what I'm going to do during the day. But if it's for work, I really want an itinerary because I'm trying to be efficient. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So Citizen Kane or How Green Was My Valley, which was actually the better movie? Well, duh. Citizen Kane. Is that like even a question? (laughs) Well, which one, one, you know, the the best picture? Has anybody ever answered how green was my valley? No. no. Nobody. Thank you. Nobody. Okay. Uh, Which was easier to master, poker or chess? For me? Yeah. Well, I don't don't play chess very much, so, uh, and, and, but neither, I mean, so, I have not put in the amount of time it would take to master chess and, and poker is too hard a game to ever master. So the answer is neither. Okay. All right. Last question. Red pill or blue pill? Oh, I'm leaving the matrix for sure. But you know what? I I do, I do, I do uh, sympathize with Joey pants because you know, being able to go in and like eat the steak. I mean, I don't, I'm, you know, like eat the really good food for just a second. I mean, not that I would sell anybody out for the opportunity, but I do see the attraction. That's very true. I do see the attraction. So I don't judge anybody who's blue pill. I do not judge anybody for that because I get it. Okay. But it seems like, I mean, the, the you know, in, in your book, you talk about the fact that most of the time, you know, people end up, you know, trying to form their opinions around what, you know, making sure that they're right as opposed to really facing reality. Yeah. And so, you know, that red pill seems like that, yeah, we, we have to face reality if we really want to get uh, to better decisions and, and better outcomes. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think the reason why the metaphor really holds here is that it's about how much are you able to sort of say what, uh, what's best in the long run that, you know, I'm willing to take the pain right now. So, I mean, obviously, uh, it's going to be better for humankind to not be used as batteries by machines, but you got to take a lot of pain. You know, you're eating gruel and they're chasing you around and it's like really uncomfortable and you're cold and you're like wearing rags and it's a lot of stress, you know, whereas sort of staying, staying in that, you know, unreality that you think is reality is very comfortable. So you, you have to make the choice. And I think that that it's, a, it's important. That's why it is a choice in the movie. So you know, I think there's a really big message there. Yeah, in the movie, the worlds are hugely diametric. They're just yeah. vastly different. You say, is our world that that uh, today? Is is our world really that divided? If if you take the blue pill with, or the red pill, I, you know, I think I think when you look at what's happening with political discourse, I think the answer is somewhat right. I mean, yeah. I've had experiences recently where, like, I was having a conversation with somebody about, say, recent Supreme Court rulings, and mm. you know, they talk about one of them. And I'd be like, yeah, I agree. And I, I don't think that that was a great ruling or whatever. And we sort of go through and then we'll get to one, one out of like, we'll have talked about five and we'll get to one where I say, well, actually, I, I actually tend to side, you know, with the court on that or whatever. And it's literally like, I just become their enemy. Like there, there's no sense of, I'm allowed to not have every single opinion, you know, comport with you. And I think that particularly when we're talking about issues of uh, beliefs and opinions and predictions that are woven into our identity, I do think that having your identity challenged is really hard and it's incredibly uncomfortable. And I think people don't like it and they see challenge where it doesn't really exist. I mean, certainly when I'm just sort of offering an opinion about a Supreme court ruling or whatever, like I'm not, I'm not challenging your identity. I'm not saying you're wrong. Right. If you like to ride bicycles and I think unicycles are cool, like I'm not saying you're a bad person, but I think people hear it that way. Yeah. Um, and I think this is really where the issue lies. Is, and, and, and this is if you think about it, like, yes, in the Matrix, the, those worlds were, you know, diametrically opposed. But it's really about what's what's your identity. Right. Like, who are you? Is, is this real or is this not real? Are you willing to sort of accept the hardships of, of what's out there if you start to say, maybe I'm not right all the time, or you know, maybe other people who believe different things aren't actually bad actors. I mean, well, and it gets, it gets to some of that tribal component too. You are part of my tribe or now, oh, wait, are you not part of my tribe because you, you have expressed a different opinion that is contrary to the, the norms and beliefs of, of our tribe. And so therefore we have to outcast you and put you in with that other group. That's exactly right. And, and what I would say is that, I, I mean, obviously, from an evolutionary perspective, and I, and I recognize that any evolutionary story is a little, you know, could be a little bit of a just so story, but, but um, you know, so just that caveat there, but tribe clear, you know, helps us survive, mm. right? Um, it takes some decision pressure off of us because the tribe itself is, is, is making decisions and, and, giving you, I mean, so Jay Van Bavel from NYU actually really talks about this. And I think in a really clear way. So tribe gives you four things, right? It gives you distinctiveness, meaning you're distinct from other people, which is very good. Um, it gives you belongingness, which is belongingness to the tribe. Yeah. It tells you what is moral and what isn't moral, because we know that, uh, 
you know, people think that uh, whatever they believe is moral or not is an absolute truth. And, and that's obviously where a lot of clashes happen because that's, that's just not true. Um, so, but it gives you sort of a moral compass, but then it also gives you something incredibly important, which is epistemic closure. So we know that we know that being epistemically open is very hard. It takes a lot of energy. Uh, you have to actually really work at it um, because what you're going around is saying is that is that my beliefs aren't 100 percent set in stone. Like I don't know for sure that they're true. I'm staying open-minded to other points of view and to being willing to change my mind. And I think that that that's that's a little bit of a you know it, I think it's a good way to live in the long run, but it does take energy that being epistemically closed doesn't. And the reason why a tribe gives you epistemic closure is that the, whoever the elite in the tribe are kind of tell you what to believe. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, that's great because now we can band together in groups. Like we're, we're pretty weak. We don't have sharp claws. We don't have sharp teeth. Uh, you know, our bones are pretty brittle. Um, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. So like being able to say like, we all believe the same thing and we're gonna defend ourselves as a group because we're in this tribe against intruders. So that we can maintain our territory, like obviously, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, awesome. But when it when it comes to our public discourse, it's it's really bad because when you think about, in particular, this epistemic closure piece, that there's sort of, and also the the moral compass piece, those are coming sort of down from above from the tribal elders or the tribal elites. And what comes along with that when it's combined with the distinctiveness and the belongingness is that people who are out of tribe are not trusted sources. So that, so that it's like, first of all, it becomes very fundamentalist, right? Because of, because of the, the epistemology and the, the morality piece, right? So that's why when I'm talking to someone and they're like ticked off, yes, my tribe, my tribe, my tribe, my tribe, and then suddenly I, I say something that would be normally out of tribe, now I haven't passed the... Fun, you know, the test of the fundamentals, and so I'm out of tribe. And then all of a sudden, like, things that I say aren't trusted. And, you know, uh, so Jay Van Bavel has, has talked about this um, uh, with research that he sort of reviewed, that it's not even just that, let's say that we're in a political tribe together, that now, once you've identified me as out of tribe, that the things that I say politically, you trust less. But if I tell you something about how you should saute a fish, you also will think I'll, I'll be less trustworthy to you. So even if it's out of the context of, of whatever that tr has caused you to be part of that tribe. So it, it's actually, it's, it's a huge problem. And some of what I talk about actually in the book and thinking of bets is how to sort of turn tribe back to good. Right, it had this survival mechanism originally, mm -hmm. um, but how do you actually turn tribe back to a good thing? Because I think that we are tribal by nature, and so, like what what I talk about is sort of like how do you create that you're the tribe that is epistemically open, that that's part of your tribal identification. Like we're the people who are epistemically open. We're the people who believe that uh, there's there's different moral stances that you could take. So, right? Right, so this reminds me of Jonathan Haidt's work when he talks about how, in, uh, how, how people who tend to be on the conservative side tend to look at the world, it's easier for them to look, or more ready for them to look at the world in more black and white terms. And the people who tend to be more on the liberal side tend to look in the world in, in these, these gradations and tend to be more open to the sort of the nuances. 
of the world. Yeah, so, so that's actually interesting. Um, it depends on whether you're talking about people who have a more liberal mindset in the, in the classic sense classic. of liberal versus people who are on the left. So we conflate those, right? Yep. So it turns out that when you ask the right questions, the left and right are sort of equally authoritarian and equally fundamentalist. Um, it's just that you have to ask the right question. So, uh, for example, um, if you ask people who identify as left, not liberal, but left, um, and obviously there's some correlation there, right? But people who identify as left, do you think that I should be able to stop you from driving a particular car because its admissions are too high? Mm -hmm. You know, they answer yes. Yes, I should totally be able to do that. Like if you, if I, if I want to force behaviors on you uh, around climate change, or it is, uh, you know, is, um, you know, should the police be able to intervene in, you know, certain things that would have to do with things that comport with what their views are. So it just turns out, and, and this is the problem of the imbalance in academics that Jonathan Haidt also talks about. Yeah. It just turns out that the kind of questionnaires that they've come up with to sort of look at rigidity and authoritarianism are asking questions where liberals agree. Yeah. And so of course they're like, yeah, everybody should be able to do that. That's great. And they come out as like really open and loose and not authoritarian. And the rights are like, no way. You know, the people on the right are like, no way. Um, so, you know, should, should, should you be allowed to uh, use force to stop somebody from having an abortion? Someone who really has the morality that that's murder is obviously going to say, yes, you, you should absolutely be able to stop somebody from doing that, where somebody on the left is going to be like, no, you know, it's your choice what you do with your body. And all of a sudden, the person on the right looks really authoritarian, and the person on the left doesn't. But when you actually make it so that it's an issue that, uh, one agrees with and not the other, you know, you just have to make it so that it's something where the, the, someone on the left has very strong feelings about it. And then you'll get that kind of authoritarian thing where all of a sudden they want police intervention or they want, they want to be told. Governmental that rules. Be, right. Exactly. So, um, yeah. so, thinking so people can find that. I, I actually, I wrote about that actually in my newsletter. And then also there was an article in the Atlantic recently from Jesse Single. Um, that people can look yeah. at to see, to see that you get equal authoritarianism and equal rigidity on the left and right if you ask the right question. Yeah, that article in, in The Atlantic was really interesting about that. It, it kind of showcases this element of, of we, we falsely believe that in our own world of, of how open we are when in reality both sides have that equal component of being rigid in their thought. And we, we all have confirmation bias. It's, it's, right. in, you know, it's one of the hardest biases to overcome. And you talk about that in your book, you know, even the smarter that you get, the harder it is to overcome these biases because we're better at being able to come up with good reasons why we, we've made that decision. Right. And, and we're not, and the thing, the, the thing that I think is really interesting about that is that we're not, we're not even aware that we're doing it, right? Yeah. Like we're not even aware. Well, I mean, as an example, we're not even aware about, of how much tribe is like yanking us around. Um, and we're also not even aware of how much our reasoning is sort of trying to reason toward a goal that agrees with us already. So 
a couple of, of examples of that are, are, are obviously you can look at this switch in terms of views of the FBI or views of the NFL, mm. right? And people don't even realize like, oh no, I, my view is just being yanked around by what the tribe is telling me to do. They, they'll, if you go and talk to them, they'll give you all sorts of reasons why their view has, has changed. Yeah. Um, and likewise, like now all of a sudden, liberals are all like smaller government, less power in the executive branch, more <laughs> control. Of course. And it's like, you realize that like a two seconds ago, you didn't believe that. And of course, if you talk to them, they would give you all sorts of reasons why they think that that's actually the right way to go, except that on either side, depending on who's in power, basically whoever's in power, the, that the, the party out of power wants there to be more local control and less executive branch control because they, they're just like, well, when I'm in power, what I think is good. <laughs> yep. And Motivated that, reasoning. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, so, and, we, and the thing is, we're, not, we're, we're totally not aware that we're doing it. Yeah. So I think that's the big thing is that that unaware part of how much we, we process things and we don't even understand. I've done a lot of work on self-identity and self-schemas and the fact that, you know, we should change our, our viewpoint on things when the facts disagree. But what we tend to do is either discount that, totally ignore where it, it passes, you can see it and it doesn't actually register in your brain. And so you go on living in the in kind of that blue pill world, and you're, you know, and, and, and life just goes on, and you're just ignorant of the fact almost. So, yeah, and and actually, it's it in a lot of ways, it's even worse than that because there's been a lot of work recently done that shows that uh, when you get out of tribe messages, that it actually mm -hmm. causes you to entrench, and I think it goes back to this idea of like people who are out of tribe because you're, you're distinct from them. Uh, they're not trusted sources. Like, I, look, if they're not trusted about uh, how you saute a fish, um, it's going to be pretty bad if they're telling you about trade policy. Right? Yeah. So it turns out that it's not even neutral. Yeah. Right? It's not even just like, oh, I hear what the other side thinks about trade policy. And so I just ignore it. It's, that makes me entrench more in what I think about trade policy because that's coming from a liar. Basically, it's coming from somebody that, that I don't trust. Um, you know, and that this is all, obviously, this is all like, this is all a huge problem because we're all running around in the matrix and we don't know it and we think that it's all real and that the way that we're coming to these ideas and these, you know, these beliefs are totally rational. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you, you know, those like, gosh, when back in the, 80s when I was, you know, 80s and early 90s when I was in graduate school, I remember reading about a lot of studies which just showed like, look, if I get you to put um, a political sign on your lawn, how much you support that candidate totally changes. Yeah. You know, it's not, the support of the candidate doesn't get you to put the sign on. It's the sign gets you to support the candidate. And we're totally unaware that this stuff is happening. Yeah, the behaviors change your mindset, whereas the mindset should actually drive your behaviors, but that's not how that works. The no. interesting research, and I don't remember who did it, but it was done, I believe, in the 70s or 80s again. They took uh, children, third graders on the playground, and they basically separated them into two groups arbitrarily, but some in red t-shirts, some in blue. And within minutes, they asked the kids in the red t-shirts, you know, so what do you think about the kids in the blue? And they were, they were less trustworthy. They were stupider. They were slower. 
you know, what about the kids in your color teacher? Well, we're, we're smarter, we're more honest, we have a whole bunch. And it happens so instantaneously and so just, again, unaware that we have this out-group and in-group biases on these things. Right. That it's hard to overcome, and so it's a it's a key thing to. It's to think very about. good for it's very good for survival. A long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So we we went around there for quite a while. We we go down these rabbit holes like we we talked about at the but beginning. See, I like that's what I like. Now, see that I haven't had that conversation with anybody. Okay. Well, and and all this kind of gets back to this idea that that thinking in bets is an equal opportunity employer. A anybody yeah. can subscribe to, it, 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 this isn't designed, thinking in bets is not designed for anyone of a particular political or uh, no. eco-friendly or live in the city versus the rural or, you know, I don't know, whatever kind of crazy differences we might have between us, but. Well, I hope not because, <laughs> I, you know, I. I'm, I'm trying to accomplish two things. I mean, first of all, I'm just trying to, to get people to listen to each other a little bit better and to recognize the value in, in hearing the dissenting voices. I mean, uh, you know, you keep saying that I, I, I talk in the book about uh, how we're really good at reasoning about why we're right, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what we're trying to do is actually reason to be accurate, right? I want to yes. construct the most accurate model of the objective truth. And in order to do that, because we're so naturally good at reasoning to be right, it would be really much better if we approach the world asking, why am I wrong? And in order to ask, why am I wrong in any kind of authentic way, uh, it means that I have to talk to people who think that I'm wrong because mm. otherwise I'm going to get some sort of straw man of, of the sort of opposing argument, right? And we want to be really careful of, of that. Like we, and this is part of the problem of being smart. It's very easy for us to argue against a straw man and without even knowing it, if we're trying to do this on our own, will construct a straw man and think it's a, it's a steel man and, and think it's actually a stronger version of the argument it is. And then lo and behold, because we're so cognitively agile, we can swat that straw man down really easily and we've done our work. So, you know, what we want to do is actually be in, engaging with the authentic voices that truly do believe different things that we do. Yeah. And, you know, what's going to come out of that is kind of, you know, one of two things. Um, and it really goes back to, you know, sort of what John Stuart Mill says, that he who knows only his side of the argument knows little of that. Um, what, what he's really saying there is that even if you, even if you think that something is 100% true, you are absolutely certain of it, that if you don't challenge it, it becomes stale. Then it just becomes, well, that's the way things are, or somebody told me that, or, you know, I just know that's true. Um, and in having to defend that argument in a logical way against somebody who believes something different than you, one of two things happens. You will either, under, you know, you might not change your mind, but you'll at least really understand why you believe that thing, which is valuable in and of itself. Yeah. Um, or you're, you'll actually calibrate your opinion. You might actually get some movement on it. And that doesn't mean full-on reversal, right? It doesn't mean I thought the earth was round and now I think it's flat. It might mean I thought the earth was round, and now I realize it's not actually quite perfectly round, <laughs> by the way. It is spherical. You, you know, it wider is. At, the, at the middle, so there right. you go. Exactly. Science on that one. Right. It's not actually perfectly round. But, <laughs> but um, so, you know, so that's the thing. It's like you, you'll just get some movement, or, or what may actually happen is that you may just 
really understand the other side and understand that it's an authentic point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's actually going to help you have, uh, first of all, more compassion toward people who have that, but also uh, that point of view and maybe not think that they're such bad people. Are, um, are you or, familiar with, uh, with, with Cal Turnbull's Change My View Reddit community? Just, no, no. I don't know about the community. I know who he is. Yeah, Cal is, is just great. We, we actually got to talk to him a few months ago. And, and you know, he's got a half a million people who go in there and say, I'm not sure about this. <gasps> That's wonderful. And they're willing to engage in a conversation. It's like, that is just magic as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, so, and that actually gets around... So this gets around that backfire effect, right? I mean, the issue with the backfire effect is if, if you tell me your point of view and I'm not actually seeking it, I'm not actually trying to be open-minded to it, then I'll, then I'll entrench. Mm-hmm. But if I'm engaging with you because I, I actually want to hear what you have to say and I'm open-minded to what you have you, have you say, you know, what you say, then I won't entrench. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, I think that that's so incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I'm going to totally explore that community. I mean, I know who he is, but I didn't know he had that community. And now I'm super excited to find that out. And how did I not know? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we interviewed him in a podcast. And, and um, Tim, help me remember, what was his granddad's um, statement, his quote? Do you remember that off the top of your head? I think he said, we, we start with a, a perspective and we end with a perspective. But in the middle... We're going to take in facts and figures and information and hope that what we end with is more accurate. Oh my gosh, that's like isn't that gorgeous? Right there, yes. (laughs) And it really is this wonderful community out there where people are asking. And and he started it. It's really interesting for people. If you haven't listened to that on our, it's one of our earlier podcasts. And so go out and listen. I'm going to definitely go back and listen to that because that's that's fabulous. So, Annie, I think you talk, so as you're talking about this as like exploring your opinions and making sure, even if you think you're 100% right, but exploring that component, you talk about learning groups in your book or various, you call them various different things. So, help us understand, is that a way to overcome this and and how do you, how, how do those work? What are the best ways for people, if they were to try to say, I want to do this in my life, I want to live a life that is looking things as trying to understand what is more accurate as opposed to proving that I'm right, how people go about doing that. Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons why I'm like a huge fan of a learning pod and it doesn't need to be 20 people like you and two other people is fine. There's, there seems to be something magical about triads in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, but it can be more than three. I mean, I'm not saying it has to be just three, but three is a, you know, is a, is a reasonable number. So there's a couple things for, I mean, at, at the basic level, we know that we're not particularly good at spotting our own bias. So, but, but I don't know about you guys, but I'm really good at spotting bias in other people. Oh, I'm brilliant at that. That's one yeah, of my you, greatest. You should see me screaming at CNN. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you should so see Tim screaming at me. Like the pundits are talking and I'm like, wait, but that's a biased argument. And then the other pundits like, wait, that I'm an equal opportunity screaming at the bias. Um, But like when I'm talking about it, you know, I'm like, I'm totally not biased at all. I'm completely reasonable. 
Of course. Tim, that's yeah. you right there. <laughs> we are so from the same tribe. I trust you. <laughs> exactly. So, so here's the thing. If we know that we're really good at spotting bias in other people, but not so good at spotting bias in ourselves, then, well, get some other people to help spot your bias. Uh-huh. Like, let's m- make an agreement. Like, I'm super good at spotting you guys' bias, and you guys are <laughs> super good at spotting my bias, so let's make a team. Yeah. And your job is to, is to, to spot our, my bias, and my job is to spot your bias, and let's, let's do that. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of number one. But, but number two, and I think that this is much more, uh, uh, much more so why I think the tribe is so important, is that as we talked about in the beginning, like exiting the matrix is painful. Mm-hmm. We know that a lot of our identity is, is driven from this idea that we're competent and we're intelligent and the things that we believe are generally true and very well thought out. And I think that most people do like to think of themselves as open-minded or actually having considered the other side, even though we, we really don't. Um, and having somebody say, like, I think you've made a mistake or, you know, you have some great thing happen and you're sitting there crowing about it and someone's like, well, don't you think maybe that was really due to luck? Like, that doesn't feel good. Like, you don't get to put that in your, you know, when you're doing your mental accounting of like, I'm smart or I'm not smart. It's like, we want all the smart checkbox. We want, well, as Kahneman talks about, we want uh, a positive self-narrative of our life story. Like, this is kind of what we're, we're driven by. And even if I say to you, like, even if you accept in theory that taking some pain in the moment is going to make it more likely that in the long run, at the end of your life, when you look back, you'll have a positive narrative because you'll have better, you know, more accurate mental models. Um, in the moment, we lose the check mark. It's hard for us to see, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a little pain right now on the, like, I made a mistake or uh, a poor decision or you know, I was biased in the way that I was thinking about this, but that's going to really help me in the long run. Like that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think about us as, you know, at our core, we're all just trying to get a reward. Like we're all a rat running a maze and we're hoping to get a piece of cheese at the end or a pellet or whatever. And we need those pellets. And I don't think you're supposed to give those pellets up. I, I'm not enough of a stoic to say, <laughs> You know, oh no, I, I, I take pain and that, you know, that helps me to, I mean, I'd like to be that stoic, but I'm not. I, I still, I want my little piece of cheese after I run the maze. Yeah. So I think that what a really good group does when it's intentionally formed is it allows you to get your pellets because what the group is reinforcing is now different. It's this, it's this turning tribe on its head to work for you because the three of us, let's say, um, we now agree that we're going to be in this decision pod. And and what we're going to do is we're going to change the normal social contract. So the normal social contract is if you say something kind of silly, like we're standing at a cocktail party and you say something I disagree with, I'm not going to get in an argument with you about it. I'm going to just sort of let it slide and go find the vodka, you know? So (laughs) because it's not the way that normal social interaction works, but the problem is that when we bring that kind of normal social interaction into things like trying to figure out like uh, who are we supposed to vote for? What's the best policy or how do I make a good decision or what should I do in my career or what strategy or what partner should I choose or, you know, these things that really have great import. Um, Then all we do is get in an echo chamber where people are sort of affirming us. 
Now that does feel good in the moment for you to tell me how smart I am because you agree. And aren't we all great because we all have the same opinions, yay us, but that's not very good in the long run. So we can get into a group where we say, we're going to reward different things, right? The behaviors, the lever that you press to get the pellet is now going to be different. Right. And, and, and the lever that you're going to be pressing is the I'm not sure lever. The I need help with this. I think I may have uh, actually made a mistake. Um, I'm really interested because I, I had this particular view and now I'm thinking having heard some other stuff that maybe that was wrong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, you talked about in the book and I think in other podcasts that I've listened to, you talk about um, you, you doing that as part of your poker and, and mm -hmm. with your brother and Eric Seidel and, and that group really helping you understand and improve your poker. Do you, do the people in that group, in that learning pod, do they need to be experts in that area to be able to, do you need to, do you need to, trust is not the right word, do you need to respect them from that perspective that they're going to, I don't know, is that, I'm going down a hole here. Yeah, so I would say, I would say it depends on what you're trying to do, right? So, okay. I mean, it's nice to have mentors. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, for sure, who, you know, who, you know, are experts in the area. Uh, but no, I, I think that in general, no, I think that we could all be beginners and be trying to work through the game ourselves. And the only requirement is that we're all open-minded to different opinions. Okay. That when you come and tell me how you played a hand, that I'm allowed to challenge your thinking, mm. that I'm allowed to explore alternatives. Even that I'm allowed to to think about different. That I'm allowed to talk to you about different ways that you might be thinking about your the hand, and that in doing so, you're not becoming defensive because uh, the way that you play the hand is not what's woven into your identity. It's the open mindedness to exploring what the best way is that becomes part of your identity, and then we can sort of learn together. Now, what's going to come out of that is that naturally we're all going to be going out and seeking. Uh, expert opinion you know okay. we're going to be going look to look for things to read or videos to watch or you know whatever it might be or or books to read or getting into this reddit group you know turnbull's reddit group or whatever to go to go seek out opinions to bring back to the group because when we come back to the group with some cool thing that we we saw that it was like mind-blowingly changing what i think is the best strategy you're going to be like that's amazing yeah yeah so it's not required that uh, for any of us to be experts in, in, in the not at all. We, we, we can, it's, it's okay to actually say, I, 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 I respect your opinion. I have a different opinion. Here's my opinion, which might be total horseshit. It, it might be based on completely fallacious, uh, information, but, uh, but we all agree to, okay, well let's, let's spend some time working on this problem. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, exactly. And, and by the way, like most of my opinions are horseshit. So I hope you're going to help me with that. <laughs> No, I'm serious. Yeah. yeah. Like, I know, I, I know that sounds like a joke, but it, it, it's completely serious. I mean, I try, to get this, I try to get this point across to people in this way. I'll, I'll say to people who are of our age, was there anything you believed that was like, you, you thought was like 100% true, like you were so sure of when you were 20 that you now think maybe was horseshit? And everybody laughs because they're like, most of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very true. I laughed. Yeah. I was smiling. There you go. 
And me too, by the way. Most of what I like, I believe things with such conviction when I was twenty. And now <laughs> back and I'm like, what was that? Like, I can't believe I believed that. Why do you think that today, if you take this slice of time, it's any different? That's what I try to get across to people, <laughs> right? Like, we're always taking in new information. I mean, the whole point is that I mean, you could think about it from the standpoint of like actually humanity in general. I mean, we did all used to believe with total conviction that the Earth was flat. Mm -hmm. We did used to believe that the sun revolved around the earth, for example, and that was just consensus opinion that people had very strong convictions about, and it was a little bit heretical, not even a little bit, a lot heretical to, to challenge those opinions. I mean, look what happened to Galileo. It didn't go so yeah. well for him, uh, but thank God for Galileo. Like, so how do we get Galileos in our lives? First of all, we ha have to agree that our opinions can't possibly be 100% true, black and white, set in stone, and that it may be that we hold beliefs today that in the, in the course of time we will view the same way we now view the beliefs that we held when we were 20. That, that's number one. And then number two, I have to not think that you challenging me is heretical. I have to say, no, I need Galileos in my life. Like I need people yeah. to be challenging what I believe. So, so two things off of that that I want to go on. So one is, so Tim and I started this podcast. We had started actually Behavior Grooves as a, as a meetup to gather people every month to get people together to talk about behavioral science and learn about, you know, how that works. So I, I'm thinking that there could be a meetup around learning pods that could be come this whole component where you just go out and you set up a meetup and you invite people to say, hey, we're going to hold each other. We're going to be the Galileos for each other. And we're going to hold each other accountable. And that could be a, you can make a whole movement out of this. So um, there I you go. I love it. I love it. <laughs> there you go. So that's, that's number one. And number two, um, you're talking about thinking in not as a black and white, not in a hundred percent. And I have to tell you, Tim and I have started to, to actually take this on. You talked in, in your uh, uh, conversation, uh, the, the podcast that, that we listened to about thinking in 70% or, seven, you know, and you told a story about uh, going, really to lunch. Yeah. going to lunch and talking about 73%. Can you tell us that story? Tell our listeners yeah. that story. That was sure. Uh, so I think this, this is in the chapter notes. So you have to really have uh, – really wanted to read every single word that's written in my book because it's in the <laughs> I, I recommend I actually recommend people go look at my chapter notes because there are actually some funny stories in there that, that aren't in the body of the book. But uh, they're fun. They're fun. Yeah. Recommend that very much. So <laughs> recommended. So this is this is a story from uh, so I was meeting up with Stuart uh, Firestein who wrote a book called Ignorance and also a book called Failure. He has a wonderful podcast uh, that's based on actually on the book Ignorance and um, he teaches a, a seminar that's interdisciplinary at, at Columbia, which is where he's a, a professor, um, that's called Ignorance. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he gets to them when they're seniors, when I think people are more willing to maybe admit some ignorance. But um, uh, so his whole thing is that, like, you can't move your life forward unless you're approaching the world saying, like, I don't really know much, right? Like, yeah. teach me. Um, and that this is how science proceeds from this standpoint of always saying, like, I'm probably wrong. Let me try to prove, you know, the opposite. So, um, so anyway, so I was meeting up with him up by Columbia. Um, by the way, let me just say, I realized something when I was up there because I hadn't been up to Columbia in many, many, many years. And I realized that my whole map of the area, because I was an undergrad there, was um, 
I, it was completely mapped. All the landmarks were bars. <laughs> <laughs> my, my like, oh, is, is the Marlin still here? Is <laughs> the landscape of Iowa City for me, University of Iowa. That's that's the same exact thing. Same I went, thing, back right? couple, went back up and going, wait. I have no idea where I am downtown because those bars are gone. Because the bars are gone. Uh, bars and coffee shops. But the coffee shops were only in relation to 4 a.m. after the bars. So <laughs> just, just um, anyway, so we were, we, were going to, we were going to a Chinese uh, restaurant. And um, I have, like, some dietary challenges. I'm vegan, and I also get super, super sick if I eat gluten. So I, I can't eat gluten. Um, because uh, I have some autoimmune issues that gluten doesn't mix well with. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to the, uh, and then the other thing happens to be that I don't like, like eggplant, which is just a preference. <laughs> it's just a preference. Okay. So okay. I'm trying to order something and I'm trying to find something that's vegan. And then also I have to find something in the right sauce so it doesn't contain gluten. And the only thing that I can really find that sort of fits with my dietary needs also happens to contain eggplant. So I'm yeah. now trying to explain to the, uh, to the waiter who where English is not the waiter's first language um, that, you know, I want this, but I don't want eggplant. Could I have this other thing? And can you make sure that there's no soy sauce in it? Um, so he's, you know, he keeps, I, I keep sort of having to repeat myself. It doesn't seem to be going too well. And then, and then Stuart orders and the waiter walks off and I looked at Stuart and I said, well, that it's 73%. And that literally, that was all I said. I didn't say anything else. And he just started laughing because he knew exactly what I meant, which was it's 73% that this food is going to come the way that I've just asked for it in this totally complicated way. I felt like Sally in when Harry met Sally, without the weird stuff that happens after she orders at the deli. But, um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, so he just started laughing and he said, oh, I actually would have said it was more like 47%, I think. <laughs> so he actually had it pegged much lower. That the order, the order did come back right, which I would just like to point out does not mean that my estimation was right because he said 47% of the time it was going to come back correctly and I was saying 73%. We'd need to run a Monte Carlo in order to figure out who was actually more accurate. Um, <laughs> but, but I did get my food, I did get my food right. But he, he just started laughing because he was just sort of like, oh, that's such a funny way to speak. Thank you. But he was really, he was like, oh, that's so cool. Cause he's a scientist and he's approaching yeah. the world of ignorance. So, so we really bonded over that and we're now totally fast friends. <laughs> I, I, I love that story. And, and I thank you for telling us that the order came back as, as it was. Cause I was, I, it was left hanging. Uh, it's, it's not in the notes. It's not in, in there. And I'm going, oh, where did that come from? Uh, but, but what's interesting is you talk like, so it doesn't mean that he wasn't right and that you weren't right. And I think you were just writing um, another thing about uh, when uh, 538 in the election in 2016, right? And they were talking about the, the polls and saying how the, you, you know, Hillary was, had a 70% or 60 to 70% chance and every pundit, as you were talking about before, was meant said that, oh, well, that means that there's a sure win, when in reality, that's a 30 or 40% chance that, you know, Donald Trump is going to win, which actually did prove out the case. My question, I think, is really, I think we all tend to immediately jump to, wow, it's 70% or even 65 or even 60% that that means we're going to, that, that outcome is, is much more sure than it is. And is there, 
Is there anything we can do? Do you think that's natural that that's how we're humans are, our brains are wired or is that a learned component? Is it something, what can we do in order to actually get better at thinking probabilistically? Probab yeah, I can't say that word. Probabilistically. Thank you. Yeah. So, so first of all, I think that most of us have yes, no, and maybe. Mm. Right. Like if 538 had said it was 50, 50 yeah. and, and Trump won, nobody would have been saying that 538 was wrong. Um, so I, I think that what happens is once it sort of becomes enough favored, like far enough away from 50, which I actually don't think is that far, but I, I think certainly once you get a six yeah. in front of it and become 60, 40, it just goes to yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I think the reason for that is that, no, I, I don't think that we're particularly well wired to think probabilistically. And I, I think it's because we don't experience experience probabilities that much. I mean, most of us aren't doing something like I do, did where I, I really am seeing when you're a 60-40 favorite, I get enough trials in to really understand what's, how often 60% happens. But that's because I was dealing with it in an explicit way. Implicitly, I think that we do have some understanding of probability and it comes out of actually the title of the book. So this is, this is why I think this question, like, do you want to bet? Like if mm -hmm. we were all thinking in bets better, the reason why I really understand that is because I was betting on 60 40s. Right. So I was going to lose all my money if I didn't really understand what that meant. So like, for example, like if we took those pundits who were like, well, Clinton's going to win. And I said, well, do you want to bet on that? Mm. You know? And they'd go, no, I mean, it's 60 40. <laughs> Trump has a really good chance. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so I think of what happens, the way that I, I think about what happens when you say to somebody who want to bet is this, is that there's all sorts of uncertainty in the world. There's un, there has to be uncertainty in our beliefs because we can't possibly know everything there is to know about a, a given subject to have a perfectly formed belief. And even, by the way, even if we did have all of the information, we still have to model it. Right, you still have to weight the information. What's what's reliable? What's not? How much should this go into my belief formation? And and it would be impossible to to be sure um, whether you have a, a perfect model, right? And even when you when you think about mo uh, most models, like a, a model of, for example, gravity, what what that model, the best model is going to capture as much of the data. So. So they're going to make, uh, they're going to be able to predict certain things about the way that objects will behave as they fall toward the earth. And the best model will be able to make the best predictions and actually capture most of the, most of the phenomena. But we even know that when we think about our model of gravitational forces, that we don't actually get all of it. It's right. just that that's, that's sort of the best model we have, right? So, so when we're talking about something that seems so much more sure and so much more agreed upon as the way we think about the theory of gravity, and that we know that there's some uncertainty there in terms of we're not actually capturing some of the edge cases. You better start to get like super unsure about your own beliefs. You better hold them pretty loosely and recognize that they're, that they're under construction. That doesn't mean that you can't make a decision based on them because that's the best belief you have at the moment. Right. right. So, so that's the, that's the input. And then, and then when we start getting into predictions, well, predictions are informed buy these imperfect beliefs and then now you add another element into it which is luck right so uh we, we we're thinking we're predict we're saying something about the way that the future might turn out like we think that this is 60 percent. we think this is 40 percent uh those are going to be 
inexact. They're they're going to be somewhere near you know perfect, but inexact. And then and then once we make that prediction, we have no control over whether the sixty percent or the forty percent occurs. And by the way, even if I make a prediction that I think is going to come true ninety eight percent of the time, I have no control on a single try right. over whether the two percent is going to happen. So <laughs> these are the two sources of uncertainty we have. Uh, an information problem. We don't have all the information and um, we, we're sort of trying to figure out like we don't, and even if we have all the information, we don't know how we're supposed to weight it. Right. That's all hidden from view. It's too complicated. Exactly. And then we have this luck element. When I say want to bet, it reminds you of the uncertainty. It makes the uncertainty bubble to the surface. And that is a good thing, not a bad thing because Mm. As we're trying to make decisions, the more that we have uh, an accurate view of our own uncertainty, the better our decisions will be. Do, do you think some of that comes from the, the reward component of that? In other words, in a bet, you are actually put, you have a different reward than just being right or wrong. You're actually placing some monetary component that then becomes a loss that is much stronger than that you can't discount, right? You can't just ignore it. I don't know if that. So I I think that that's, I I think that that's pretty right on. Uh, You know, I think that I say in the book, the person who wins in a bet is not the person who argues to think they're right. It's the person who actually is the least biased, right? The person has the most accurate uh, view of the world. So you can think about uh, it, it creates a different reward. So this is what I'm thinking about in terms of these decision pods is that we create an agreement that creates a different reward that's around debiasing. It's around accuracy as opposed to rightness and right and accurate. I really try to make the point that right and accurate are different. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is get to accurate and not right. So, um, so, you know, if you have a pod, you're creating that different kind of reward structure. If I'm betting with you, I'm also creating a different reward structure where what's being rewarded is accuracy as opposed to rightness. And now I've got a substitute for what I feel good about. Yeah. Right. So, so, so now instead of just feeling like my opinion is affirmed, which doesn't have any immediate consequences. So those are going to reveal themselves over time in a way that isn't necessarily going to hurt my ego. Right. So uh, I'm taking the reward of just that, good feeling of look how smart I am and look how great I am. And now when, if we're actually betting, I'm, I've got a different reward, as you said, like a stronger reward, which is I don't want to lose my money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I've actually been doing this experiment. Like this is a really good experiment to do right now. So uh, there's obviously um, a lot of talk around the midterms and, and I've had a lot of people say to me, uh, the Democrats are going to take the house. And if just try it out and say, well, do you want to bet on that and watch what happens? Well, I didn't say for sure. Yeah. I didn't, well, I didn't say for sure. I mean, I just think they're more likely to take the house. And then I say, I agree. <laughs> but, yeah. But I, I, I would never say they are going to take that house. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the, oh, Sorry, it's the, it's the political betting markets that are out there that, you know, started at the University of Iowa where I was, where you're, you're betting, actually, it's really small sums, which makes it, even more interesting because it gets to that point where, so what? It's a dollar, but people actually, the, they're much more accurate. And they, I was reading recently, they, they were talking about, they did a betting market on the replicability of, yeah. of you know, research and studies. And they were much more accurate than, you know, the editors in, in some yeah, of these that was, cases. It was Brian Nozak, right? And he, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, 
So, and Anna Dreber was involved in that and, and uh, uh, the betting markets did a really, really, really good job of predicting, uh, you know, what was going to replicate and what wasn't. And, yeah. you know, one of the thing, points that I saw made about that was a couple things. One is that the results that felt more intuitively right uh, were the ones that seemed to replicate and that that came through more in the, in the, the betting market than in the opinion market. Cause I think sometimes, a result that's really surprising is sexier. Like we kind of want it to be true more. Uh, but when it comes down to betting on this thing that really goes against your intuition, you know, maybe hmm, not so much, uh, but also it takes out, um, some of the things like it comports with my work. So I want it to be true or this person's a friend of mine. And so I want it to be true because yeah. when it comes down to bet, it's like if I'm playing poker with you, like, I don't care that you're my friend. I just want to beat you. Right. Like, so <laughs> again, it, it, it puts this like laser focus on accuracy and, and these kind of other things that can get in the way of the way that we're reasoning. Um, I think sort of are, are more likely to get uh, brushed to the side then. So yeah. uh, I wanted to ask about you. You mentioned you're, you're uh, in the, in the middle of a, another PhD. Is that right? Well, I'm, 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 so let me just say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like 80, 80, maybe 78%, somewhere between 78 and 82% to actually do this. Okay. Uh, but I, you know what the thing is, like, I, I've got some questions that I want to ask. Yeah. And so I've been talking to Bill Tetlock and Barb Mellers, and I think I have some ideas around studying, um, actually kind of, um, seeing how you can formalize this idea of a decision pod and uh, particularly how you can um, create structure around conversation. Mm -hmm. So let's think about, you know, obviously there's choice architecture. Let's think about conversation architecture, right? So choice architecture is really good for an individual conversation architecture in terms of a group and to, and to guide the conversation to places that's going to cause uh, learning to, to, uh, speed up because you're creating structure around the way that the conversation goes that allows you to ask better questions about how you, how you actually deconstruct the decision process, how you sort of come up with uh, what's luck and what's skill in a decision. Yeah. So it's not about, is it about framing or is it about anchoring, priming kind of people's thought process in that, in that conversation or how would you well so the, the way that, yeah so so the way that i think about it is this that what what's really good about a decision pod is that um a decision pod is really kind of instantiating mertonian norms okay right? uh you have to be sharing data um and particularly all of the data right even the stuff that maybe casts you in an unflattering light or doesn't really agree with the the conclusion that you'd like to draw or the belief that you think is is hundred percent true because that we tend to think about these things as black and white, right? It uh, forces you to try to separate the uh, information from the source. That's that tribalism problem, right? So right. maybe the, the information be maybe coming from out of tribe, but uh, that doesn't mean that you're not an expert in it and I shouldn't trust that information, right? So I have to uh, try to think about how do I separate that outside of like, I'd rather listen to an expert than a non-expert. I mean, obviously there's certain cases where you, it's good to know who delivered the information, but not just because they're out of tribe or in tribe. Um, and then, uh, 
obviously this disinterestedness, like what's my own conflict of interest and not financial, but how much is my own belief getting in the way of being able to reason about this well, or how much is my own uh, prediction or forecast getting in the way of me being able to think about how do I adjust that better? Um, and then uh, am I really trying to listen to differing point of views, right? Am I really trying to think about why am I, am I wrong, right? So what, what the decision pod does, I think, is two, twofold. It helps you to really instantiate those, those, scientific, those Mertonian norms um, in the way that you're sort of approaching information and you're approaching process and you're trying to come up with what the best decision is or what's true and what's not true. Um, but also, it creates accountability to the group, meaning that in the moment when I'm out on my own, right. trying to process the information that's coming in, I know I'm going to be accountable to the group later. So it's more likely that in the moment that I'm actually thinking within the boundaries of those norms. So is some of, the, is, is some of this influenced by uh, Lila Gleitman? You know, you, I mean, you, you, uh, you, you, know, you dedicated your last book to her and Mike, you know, she's a, um, a monument, you know, in, in she is a monument. She, she was, so, so, so Lila was, um, obviously she was my, my advisor yeah. in graduate school. I sit, still see her all the time. She's totally lovely. Well, can, uh, we, there's, I mean, this, I've, I've been a fan of hers for, I don't know, seven or eight years. Uh, so I'm kind of late to the party, but I just only, I only recently discovered her contribution to the dictionary, which is monumental. That that she brought the word "fuck" to the end to the to the dictionary, which is holy cow! What right. a, as a as a as a graduate student, I think that's pretty pretty intense and pretty fabulous, actually. I'm, so I'm, yeah, so so I'm, I will tell you that Lila is. I mean, she trained. You know, she well, she was the second person that got to me. A, a student of hers was the first person who got to me. So when I was a graduate student, I was Barbara Landau's. Uh, research assistant Barbara Landau's now at um, Johns Hopkins. Okay. Uh, she was she was a student of Lila and Henry's, and she's the one who sort of directed me over to Lila. So I mean, I feel like you know, obviously, I was trained as a scientist at Penn, and Lila really, really trained me. And yes, so here here's here's why Lila so completely influenced the way that I think about these things when I was studying language acquisition and specifically we were looking at first language acquisition, um, you know, people say, well, what does first language acquisition have to do with any of this? Like, what does it have to do with poker? What does it have to do with any of this? Um, it's like, it has everything to do with it. And the way that Lila thought about that problem um, ended up influencing the way that I think about everything. And I think that you'll get it having just come off of this, this, this thing about how do you structure conversation to kind of, kind of constrain the way that you're thinking about things. So here's the problem in first language acquisition. There's a whole bunch of noises out there, right? So there's, there's all these sounds. And the first job of this little tiny baby is to separate natural language sounds from other types of sounds, including sounds like just screaming out like, ah, right? Which is not, that's just a scream, right? So uh, I've got to know that the cat meowing, for example, is not a la natural language sound or maybe some weird noises that my cat. So you have to be able to figure out, okay, what's part of the language? Then you have to figure out, okay, given that there's this stream that I've now identified as the sounds of natural language, I have to now figure out what the words are. Mm -hmm. 
And then I have to map those words out onto the world. And that's just a freaking mess. I mean, when we talk about uh, bad feedback and um, just a noisy environment, noisy, like pun intended, I suppose. Um, uh, boy. versus noise. Right. This is it. Because, you know, think about like a cat running across the room and the mom points and says cat. Well, I mean, you know the word cat, so it seems obvious to you that that's the, the, the animal um, and that I'm mapping that onto that. But think about it from the perspective of the kid doesn't know that, right? Is it running? Is it cat? Is it mammal? Is it yeah. small? Is it gray? Is it fur, right? Here's a question. Is it C? Mm. I don't know. Is it a state of mind like think? Because what I could be saying when I point is, I think that cat's really scared, right? So, whoa, right? I mean, particularly when you get into things that you can't even see, like thinking. I mean, when you get into states of mind. Right. So you have to figure out, like, is it a noun? Is it a verb? Is it an adverb? Is it the act of running? You know, uh, okay. (laughs) Now, once you sort of realize, like, oh, my God, that's really hard. Think about this that kids have this pretty mastered by a year old. Yeah. Right? So they understand the language pretty well by a year. By two, they're all experts. Oh, my God. Right. So that's like super crazy, right? It is. It's insane. Super crazy. So kind of up until, up until, I mean, Lila really, really, really started working on this, along with, by the way, sort of in parallel to Steven Pinker, Mm -hmm. uh, who at the time was at MIT, uh, people just sort of took for granted, like, oh, the child learns because you point at stuff, and then that's how they do it. So we were trying to think about how do you constrain the set of possibilities, right? How, so here are the two lines of research that I was doing with her. Um, and it was basically in this, this uh, uh, area called syntactic bootstrapping. Yeah. So the idea was, look, if you have access to the grammar, that constrains the set of possibilities for any word that you might pick out of the stream. Because if you have access to the grammar, then when I say cat, in the context of the cats running across the room, you know it has to be a noun. So now you're at least looking for a thing. Mm. Right? If, 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 you know, if you know that it's a verb, you're looking for an action. Right? So think about how much this constrains the set of possibilities. So I worked on two things. One was uh, okay, how would the child have access to the grammar? And what I did was, I mean, if you, I don't know if you want to get into the nitty gritty. This um, is, we are, we are nerds in this area. So please. Okay. This is- I'm going to nitty gritty this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners, you're going to be bored, but Tim and me are enjoying the hell out of this. <laughs> yeah. So what I did was I said, well, maybe there's something particular about the rhythm of a mother's speech uh, to a child that makes the grammar super accessible. In other words, is there a difference in the size of the pause depending on the size of the grammatical break? Oh. Because one thing that we know is that um, moms tend not to talk in like a, a lot of relative clauses or, you know, they, it's pretty straightforward. Like that's a cat, you know, the cat is gray, right? So we know that there aren't a lot of very strange constructions, but the idea was maybe the pauses between words are smaller than the pauses between phrases are smaller than the pauses between clauses. So in essence, the rhythm of the speech is providing a grammatical tree um, to the child. So how did I study that? 
what I did was I created two picture books about Donald Duck. <laughs> and I had, in each of them, I had some identical word strings that were embedded in the books, but that had different grammar. So how, how did I do that? Uh, Donald Duck walks. In the store, he finds duck food. Okay. Donald Duck walks in the store. He finds duck food. Okay. So, so notice that they're the exact same word strings, but the grammatical structure is completely different. So I had babies read, I, I had mothers read these to their little babies on average about six months old. And then I had adults read them to adults. Okay. What I found was that there was no correlation in the pauses, in the size of the pauses compared to the grammatical break, where obviously at the end of a sentence, it would be the biggest, right? That would be um, when an adult was uh, talking to an adult, but there was a very strong correlation in the, in the length of pausing um, when a parent was talking to a little baby. Wow. Okay. So that was just sort of like, yes, the grammatical structure is actually available to the child. Yes. And then the, the other work that I did was trying to show that um, Lila had this whole library of, of tapes of filming mothers talking to their children. And what I did was I took the sound out and just put a beep okay. where certain words were. And then I just looked at the reliability of people being able to pick out what it was that the mother was saying. And by the way, <laughs> it's like they have no shot. So I was trying to sort of show two ways that uh, the structure is available. And no, you can't do it just by correlation, right? So the argument at the time was, uh, well, they only say cat when cats are there. And so obviously you can pick up cat. And so that's what I was doing through these little, you know, just the beats. So yeah. that was, that's what I was doing. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> now I hope, I know this all, this seemed like, I mean, as we said, this was a rabbit hole. This was a see, great rabbit hole. <laughs> I hope Keep you going. see like how much Lila had such a huge effect on me because when I'm thinking about this noisy environment, the problem that the feedback is so only very loosely correlated to the quality of the decision, just like the, the, the sounds that you're hearing in the natural language stream are so loosely correlated to the words that they actually refer to, to the right. concepts, to the categories that they actually refer to. So how, how do you do it, right? How do, you, how do you learn when you can win a hand even though you played it like crap or you can lose a hand even though you played it perfectly. Or you can go through a red light and not even get a ticket. Or you can go through a green light and you can get you know, hit. And then, oh my gosh, God forbid that it's something more complicated than just going through a traffic light. And how are you supposed to deal with that? Oh, you have to constrain the set, mm. right? How do you put constraints on, on kind of what the choices are? So obviously, when I was thinking about children learning grammar, I was like, aha, isn't uh, evolution really great because we have this natural language machine uh, that's already kind of built in. We, we sort of know that, right? That there's only a certain set of possible grammars that you can be born into. There's only a certain set of possible phonemes that are available. And even if you take two kids uh, who are deaf, and who at, 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 there was a time when it was unpopular to teach them American Sign Language, um, that, oh, they, they start signing themselves and it's totally grammatical. Whoa, right. look at that. And you take kids who are learning a pidgin language, which is not a fully developed gram grammar, and you end up with a creole, which is a fully developed grammar. So we know there's this natural language machine, and the, the kid is sort of trying to identify kind of what grammar am I in. And look at that. The rhythm of the speech constrains 
that. They, it tells them what grammar they're in. And then once they have the grammar, that constrains the choice. Yeah. So that's the way that I think about like decision pods, for example. It constrains the way, the way, the kind of choices that you're making. That was yes. so brilliant. That was so brilliant. You brought it <laughs> the decision pods. Oh, that was excellent. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get excited over here, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> but that's Lila. But that, that's totally yeah. Lila. Like, Lila was really concerned about how are you constraining the, the set. Like, you have to constrain the set because there's too much. There's too much randomness. There's too much noise. There's too much volatility. And uh, if you don't, and, and, and I think that the other thing was that I, I really learned from that work with her what the power of a constrained set is. Yeah. That a two-year-old can master this thing that's like, you go try to learn a language right now. I dare you. Oh, yeah, or I bet. I'll come back to you in two years and see how you're doing. <laughs> don't even try, because <laughs> it, will, it will not be good. So I'm going, I'm going to, by the way. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come back to Tim. Here we I'll go. I'll take that bet. I'll take that <laughs> bet. Come <laughs> back to me, because I'm going to learn that damn language. Right. Yeah, Tim, you can move to Des Moines for a month. We'll see how well you do there. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I, two days. I, I only get two days. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Um, can we, can, uh, would it be okay if we talked about music? I always have to of ask. Of course. Yeah, it's when okay. we talked about Lila, I had no idea you were going to ask about Lila, but I'm so excited because I just want to, I just want to say for the record that Lila is like a total intellectual giant. And I would also like to say just one other thing about Lila so that people can really understand what a great woman she is. Yeah. Um, one of the best times that I've ever had in my life ever were Lila and I were driving from Philadelphia up to Boston to present at a conference at MIT. Okay. It was the first paper I was ever going to present. Um, and I was very scared because actually Steve Pinker was going to be in the audience. And like uh, oh, no. Steve and Lila were a little bit rivals. And like, uh, <laughs> anyway, for some reason, I can't remember like if there was something wrong with Lila's car or not, but we ended up taking my car. And to be fair, I was a graduate student and my car like 125,000 miles on it. I don't know how we ended up with this decision. Was this the old Honda that you talk yes. about? Yes. <laughs> okay. It was. It was. It was. It was my 1982 Honda Accord. <laughs> so, so we, somewhere around Connecticut, uh, like the alternator stops working. Oh gosh. Um, and we end up on the side of the road, like waiting for a tow truck. And it, I mean, it's like, and then like we gotta wait for the tow truck, and then the tow truck takes us over to the thing and then the, the mechanic I don't know whatever it was like an eight hour ordeal because we took my car and I have never had so much fun in my life <laughs> that is the actual like that is the mark of an amazing human being that they aren't pissy and mad and why did we take this car and why it's just like let's make the most of this amazing moment because we just really like each other and we're just gonna have fun well and, and you I can remember that so fondly like it was one of Lila and I were actually reminiscing about it recently, and she actually said, like, why did we take your car? <laughs> <laughs> but that goes into that whole conversation that you, you talk about where, you know, husband and wife, and you're going to a party, and you, the husband says, let's take the shortcut I heard about versus taking the yeah. normal way you run into traffic. And what happens, you know, if you take the shortcut, you get blamed for doing it, but if you took the right. regular way, you don't. And, and obviously, Lila... We said, well, we took your car, but hey, didn't go down that, that the badness. So. She, she just absolutely viewed it as an opportunity to spend more time. Which and, is wonderful. And the other thing that she taught me in that moment that I have used over and over and over again 
is actually it appears, so here's another way that actually she sort of influenced me uh, in terms of the book, because it appears in chapter six of Thinking in Bets, is to, to realize in the moment how great this freaking story is going to be, <laughs> right? Like, I'm getting to tell you this story. It's been like 30 years or something. And I do that all the time in moments of pain of, of where something is really hard. I, I can recognize, like, this is going to be the best story to tell at the Thanksgiving table, like, in however many years. Because either, like, and it allows you to recognize the absurdity of it and the value of it. And we were just laughing at this. And we're still talking about it. And she had that perspective. Like, she taught me that perspective of, like, don't get so caught up in the small stuff. Because in the long run, this is awesome. Yeah. I give the advice I give to people who are getting married is I go, I go, hope something goes wrong in your, in your wedding ceremony and somewhere along there, because otherwise it's just quite, and you don't remember it. You remember, and you will talk about that, you know, it started to right. rain or, you know, you tripped or whatever. Yep. That's the memory that you will last for 20, 30, 50 years. That's and exactly right. That's exactly yep, right. I'm so happy you brought Lila up. Like nobody has asked me about Lila and she, she's such a giant in my yes. life and in science, Yeah, you know, and she, she deserves for everybody to just be like, you're the bomb. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the first time I heard her, it was just, an, I instantly genuflected because I thought this is just amazing. Uh, okay. But, but let, uh, so well, that's good. It's, that's a good rabbit hole. Okay. But let's talk about music. So, okay. <laughs> um, so, um, I was thinking of, 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 you know, the music has been, it seems like music has been important to you as, a, as when you were playing poker back in those days. What about now? Do you, do you use music as a, uh, as a way to, uh, to focus your attention or engage your emotions in a way? I mean, you were just talking about, about the rhythm of speech. I mean, how natural is, is music, right? Because it's rhythmic. But uh, is, there, is there something about, about music that you use today to prep you or condition you or prime you? Well, so can I make a confession? No, <laughs> not here. No, sorry. I have a confession to make. In the last two years, I seem to have lost a lot of time that normally would have been spent listening to music listening to the news oh i'm sorry and it's so bad and i keep telling myself to stop and mm. and then i do and <laughs> <laughs> well then our challenge I to yeah is, so you know our challenge to you is rejoin your musical self i know <laughs> i know I, I need to because it's really it's like unhealthy i and i recognize that it's like completely unhealthy it's like nothing's going to change if i'm not like up to the minute yeah. um we should put a wager on this over the next year instead of, you know, switch off on that. I, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how bad it is. The last album that I really went deep on was Lemonade. When did that come out? In 2015? Oh my gosh. I think. Was Sounds it 2016? Right. I know, 2015, I think. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Jack White just had an album came, come out and I, I, I didn't, I didn't really go deep on it, which is weird because like oh, Jack White, like yeah. <laughs> I go deep on everything he does. Well, you were, were you a big White Stripes fan or Raconteur? Love the White Stripes. The Raconteurs, by the way, I've seen them live. Thank you very much. I've seen the White Stripes live. I've seen the Raconteurs live. The Raconteurs, I totally love. It goes a little bit more country. Yeah. Um, 
in the old school side. So, so I divide country into country and things that are coming out of Nashville. So I, just, <laughs> I, really clear, like, I happen to really like country. Annie, so. I'm leaving here to go to Nashville, by the way, to, oh, I love that. to discuss music plans with producers. So, Oh my uh, God, that's so awesome. So, so, yeah, so like, I'm like a Willie Nelson. Oh yeah. You know, like, uh, I, I love Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, uh, Merle Haggard, uh, Buck Owens. You know, I mean, like the really old school, yeah. you know, some Ray Price. I mean, like Ray Price is great, right? Oh, my gosh. Awesome. Truly right. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so so I, the raconteurs, I, I hear that influence in them. It's like that merging of kind of rock with that, which I love. Yeah. But I also love his soul. I love Blunderbuss, and I love um, Lazaretto. Yeah. Right? Like, so, so I, you know, totally love his solo work as well. I would say the one thing that I'm not – a giant fan of the only thing that I'm not a giant fan of that he's done is the dead weather. Okay. Uh, like I'll listen to it, but it's not my favorite of his, of his. Oh, well, I mean, he was pushing the envelope on that stuff, right? I yeah. Mean, really, yeah. He's really trying to be, and that's the great thing about Jack white is that he's, he's continually pushing the envelope and exactly. that's going to be uniform or that it's always going to work. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I just think he's so brilliant. And by the way, highly recommend for anybody to go see him because he makes so much sound and then you realize he's the only one making the sound and he sometimes translates. I mean, in a studio, you can kind of understand how that might work, but when you see him in real life, he's making just as much sound. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. He has like 20 instruments on the stage and he's somehow managing to recreate sort of what you're hearing on the album, like one person. <laughs> like, how yeah. did you do that? And that, you know, Meg is over there, you know, doing some drums, but everything else <laughs> is Jack White. It's, it's <laughs> wild. Wow! It's wild. I've never, I've it, never. It is amazing those those musicians who are are, are multi talented in the you know any type of mu uh, musical instrument. You know Prince from Minneapolis, ah, you know, one yeah. of those. Yeah. You look at a, a number of you know. I we were just talking about Angus and Julia Young, who's one of my favorite new favorite bands, and saw them live, and they started off playing the trumpet, and then going to piano, then going to bass, then going to the guitar. That I mean, right. just multiple instruments through one concert. And you're going, I can't play one. How how do you guys master yeah, right? And somehow <laughs> put it together to create sort of a wall of sound, which is like totally insane. I got to see Prince actually. At, at the forum in LA, I'm going to say I saw him in 2010 or 2011. Oh, okay. It's like, oh, so yes. good. And still dancing despite his hips, which of course I think is sort of what ended up being his downfall. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I need to get music back in my life because I really love it. And I feel <laughs> like I, I'm making such a confession to you about this problem that I, I have a news problem. <laughs> Well, well, here, if, if you're going to be writing, we talked earlier before we started about, you know, potentially a couple new books, you know, do you use, do you use music to help in, in your writing process? Do you have it going on in the background or do you do that? I mean, is that? Yeah. So I, no, I don't. And the, the reason is that I actually have, uh, I have an issue with more than one channel going on mm. at the same time. So like if I'm in a car with you, the radio's off if we're talking. I, I can't have both things happening at the same time. So when I'm writing, I need total silence. Like I literally, it has to be completely silent. Yeah. So there's no television, there's no music, there's no nothing. I can't do it. Okay. Now, if I'm like reading Twitter, I'll have music on, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't 
need my focus, but, but something that really seriously needs my focus. And if I'm having a conversation with somebody, I, I want to be able to focus and really focus on them. I can't have the other stuff going on. It's just a quirk of me. Right. Um, yeah. So I can't, I can't do it. I'm with There's you. a component of multitasking that, you know, it, it, it's yeah. some degree yeah. of that. And yeah. we're not good at that. How, for me, music is engaging. So why would I want to listen to, why would I want to have music going and not engage with it? Yeah, yeah. That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so I'm more of like a, a sort of like deep dive, like long car drive, really, you know, listening to music. Or I used to, um, uh, when I used to run, I was training for a marathon and I, you know, I, I, I had playlists and, yeah, you know, amazing like and it would be this weird mix of like you know jack white and like the black eyed peas and you know willie nelson and uh hedwig and the angry inch would suddenly appear and whatever it's like very jack johnson you know it's, it's very sort of all over the place i, I like to say like so I, I sort of like to say like i i like people because um their phrasing is weird and they can't necessarily sing that well so, <laughs> I mean, except for Beyonce, but, um, but like Willie Nelson is the perfect example of that, right? Like, oh, yeah. he's not a great singer, but his phrasing is so interesting. Like, the way he interprets a song is just like, and the way he, like, his guitar work is, like, so distinctive. And, like, I think Jack White is in that same category, right? And, yeah. Bob Dylan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Neil Young, those types of, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know who's a good one? Here, I'm going to, we'll see how into music you are. Particularly Nashville, Alex Chilton. Alex Chilton, oh sure, I know, I know Alex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so like in that category of yep. like not yep. the best singer, but like the interpretation of the song and, and the way that he's he's playing the instrument and and the way and the way he uses, I mean, the, the words that he's choosing, right? The, yeah. the way that he's telling the story, uh, I would put him in the same uh, camp as say Jason Isbell, right? Yeah. That he's using he, he's using uh, sometimes poetic words and sometimes really really straight words that are like. Mm -hmm all of a sudden have a poetic experience to you. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, at least, so I totally love it. Like the violent femmes. I mean, those are one of my early ones. I, I saw them at the bottom line. No, you know, no, that's not true. I saw, I saw them at Columbia mm. in 1983. They played at Columbia. And then, um, I, the person I saw at the bottom line was Jonathan. Um, ah, now I'm blinking. Jonathan uh, Richmond, Jonathan Richmond. Jonathan Richmond. Yeah. Who did, uh, that one. Here, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Like, he did Superman. You have to look at him. Let me see if that's it's. Yeah, it's Jonathan Richmond. Hold on. I'm I, will, I will tell my violent femme story while you look that up. So I saw them in a small bar in Iowa City. And my oh. favorite recollection, one of those where the, the, the stage is literally a foot up off of the ground and they're right there in front of you. And some person in the middle of the show jumped up on the stage and was dancing with them and they all just stopped. And the oh. drummer goes, you know, I've lost my concentration. And he walked off. And they literally, they, they left the stage, came back. The um, Oh, who's the lead singer? I, uh, Gordon Gekka, right? Gordon yeah. comes back on. Yeah, yeah. The, the bass player comes back on. But the drummer just won't come back. And he continues. He, he won't play. He goes, I lost my concentration for 10 minutes. It was just the weirdest, strangest. That sounds like them. I don't know. Like, I love that. Was, Jonathan Richmond would like. You would like Jonathan Richmond if you're in this camp. And he was, like, in the 70s, kind of a precursor to a little bit more of, like, the punk. Like, he was kind of before punk. Okay. Um, 
so you can sort of see where like the violent femmes and uh, who's a little, they're a little bit, I guess I would sort of be punk new wave, but um, uh, you know, the clash and whatnot, like how they're sort of coming out of what Jonathan Richmond is doing. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got to see him at the bottom line. That was pretty fun. Wow. Like it's cool. so, but it's so great. Like I love that, that story. Like that's so violent films, you know. It is. I've lost my concentration. You just wouldn't. Right. You wouldn't play. You just sat there. Yes. That is so great. I, I feel like Jack White could do that. Yeah. It was just totally. anyway. Yeah. Okay. Annie Duke, thank you. This well, has been. You fascinating um we went down rabbit holes which we wanted to do hopefully uh we didn't bore our listeners to death with some talk but you know what we had fun so yeah hey. well, i i i'm i'm guessing this is the first time your listeners have heard of it syntactic bootstrapping <laughs> i bet it is well i don't know some of our listeners are probably pretty into well, this maybe stuff. we can hear maybe we can hear from your listeners to see how many of them have heard of syntactic bootstrapping. That would actually be fun. Let's, that would be fun. So. I'll, I'll put that in the notes. Because that, that I, I, view, I view that as something that's so like esoteric. Like it's like really, it's not, not like confirmation bias. Everybody knows what that is. It's like off in a corner of cognitive psychology. Yeah, getting into that linguistical component of various different right. pieces. So. Right. Okay, now Any, it's curry time. Yeah. What? Now it's curry time. It is curry time. It is curry time, exactly. And we are right. deeply grateful for the time. This was really fun. This was a great conversation. And, um, and, and we hope we'll, we talk to you again after the next book. Yeah, well, just like, don't tell anybody, but like, this was my favorite. Like, but don't <laughs> tell anyone, because I don't want anybody else's feelings to hurt. It's just like, literally, you literally won all the podcasts when you asked me about Lila. Well, there you go. <laughs> Good, yeah. See, Kurt, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> You were only 60% sure. You said this is a 60% question. That is total bullshit, Annie. I, I, I that conversation. No. No. All right. Annie, thank you. And uh, right, thank you, that's guys. it. All right. Talk to you later. Okay, talk to you later. All right, bye. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our now too full of information and vodka heads. <laughs> Still on the vodka thing, huh? The vodka thing, I, yes. I, I say that as if, as if I'm accusatory. I'm, I, I, as I recall, I actually kind of went there. I and, think you did. I think you were the one who led us down that rabbit hole. Oh, man, because vodka is so good. <laughs> I don't know. Just I'm, like, you know, I'm more of a beer guy but still that's okay okay so right. uh so tribes tribes yeah and, and by the way i think we have a lot to talk about in this grooving session <laughs> i think we <laughs> do too you that right there's now. a lot of information there well as, as we talked about when i first heard annie on another podcast i had listened to that podcast and wrote two and a half pages of notes and so hopefully our <laughs> yeah. listeners were able to take two and a half maybe even three pages of notes from this but i know in reviewing it i i took a lot out of this so. i took a lot of notes while we were doing the interview <laughs> it was so great it, it was, was it was so tribes tri yeah good or evil oh man both right yeah. right both and they are yet what did she say yanking us around what was, yeah. what was her quote? We are not even aware of how much the tribe is yanking us around. Yeah, that is so great. That is so great. Our environment is so heavily influenced by the tribe. Well, and it's it's also gets around to like 
who is doing the talking and how much we believe. Again, to her point, going back to, hey, if I am now not a member of your tribe, but I am an expert in, what was he? She Sa- said, sautéing fish. Sautéing fish. Right. That should have no impact Zero. On, Zero. on how much information I can get from you about sautéing a fish. And yet... We don't operate that way. We operate, well, she's not part of our tribe. I don't trust her. So I don't trust how she taught sautés a fish, even if she's the renowned expert in it. I mean, you think about actors and actresses and how some people like them or don't like them based on their political affiliation, regardless of how good or bad an actor or actress they are. Right. Are they entertaining? Do they do their job well? Right. Which has nothing to do with political affiliation. And you, you think even looking at some of the consumer product boycotts that are going out there, again, we're doing this in uh, end of September, and that was just the whole Nike, Colin Kaepernick, yeah. you know, just do it uh, theme, and all of the people burning their their Nikes, while others are going out and buying more Nikes, because now, oh, Nike's part of our trip, where a business becomes part of your tribe or not part of your tribe. Your brands become your part of your brands tribe. become yep. part of that that tribe and they're just trying to get more money from us. Are you an Android or an iOS user? Uh, are you a, are you a Mac or a, a you know a, a non-Mac basically? Yeah. You know these these are tribal dif- these can be tribal differences yeah. that are really so minuscule. And <laughs> really they don't what what does it represent that that I'm I'm more one product than another? Really? What does it mean? Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting when we talked about the, how that tribe is yanking us around. And it brought up this uh, element that I had remembered from, uh, I think it was a graduation speech in Kentucky. Uh, and I looked it up afterwards. So it's Ben Bowling's graduation speech. And so it was really, he just did it. Uh, he was the he, victali- val- valedictorian, valedictorian of the and class. And he came right? up and, and he talked right. about, oh, I Googled some quotes that I liked. And then he gave this quote. And he attributed to Donald Trump, and the crowd cheered. Oh, yay. And then he goes, oh, wait, oh, wait. I'm I'm sorry, that was actually Obama. And then there was silence, and actually some people actually booed. The exact same quote, the exact same information that when it was attributed to one person got a cheer, and yes, he's in my tribe, this is right, this is good. And when it was then attributed to somebody who was in the other tribe and potentially even the leader of the other, other tribe, that same concept, the, the, the words either got silenced or booed. Just by the fact that we're talking about this as my tribe or the other tribe is problematic for me. Exactly. Right? This is, this is systemic in that, we, that we're thinking so, bio, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The, I these, no these, two, these two things, it's, two, it's, it's dyadic, right? It's dyadic. Two, thi- two things going against each other, two separate independent things, and not, not a multitude, not, uh, you know, what Annie's talking about, the whole point of, of thinking in percentages we're not thinking in percentages. We're thinking very biopically. It's either this or it's that. It is black or it is white. There is no gray area in yeah. between. In reality, you know, the overused metaphor, we live in a gray world, right? And and the component that because somebody is is supposedly with us or in our tribe, uh, 
doesn't mean that we don't have 90% of agreement on most other issues. That's and right. I think that gets missed. And I think what Annie's trying to do, which I commend her for, and I commend people who are trying to do this, is to get away from that, to get away from this component of, yes, you are either with me or against me. And if you're not with me, you're against me. As opposed to, we don't share the same political view However, you're tremendous at sautéing trout. Right. And we should talk about that. Because I want to get better at sautéing trout, and <laughs> right. you're the, the expert I need to go to. Or right. we, we like the same football team, or we, we both enjoy behavioral science, or whatever that would be. We have a lot more in common than we have differences. At least, you know, for listeners in the United States, I believe that very true. I think, in reality, I think for most listeners around the world— as humans, and maybe this is, you know, putting some of the biases that I have on on the world out there. But I think again, for the most part, we have families that we love. We want to keep them safe. We want to give our children a better life than one that we had. We want to make sure that um, things are fair. And it goes into a bunch of Jonathan Haidt's work, right? Uh, you the, come from a weird tribe, by the way. <laughs> and that, that, none of that really appeals to me. <laughs> no. But of course, yeah, of you, course it does, right? I these know. are these are these are universals, right? right? Yeah. And and yet we tend to focus in on the differences. Yeah. It reminds me. <laughs> that, Real weird segue here. It reminds me of when we do work around organizations and sales forces, and they have a base pay and an incentive pay. Are you thinking about a particular client that we were working with? I'm just. Recently? I'm actually thinking about multiple clients I've worked with, but <laughs> yeah. one could come up. But where eighty percent of a salesperson's pay is on their base pay, mm-hmm. um, and only twenty percent is at risk or variable, and yet where is ninety percent of their effort focused and their angst and their concern? On that twenty percent, on as the if 20%. that were the entire universe that mattered. Exactly. When when you're looking at that totality of their pay, the vast majority of that is is already it, it's 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 base pay, and there are certain things that you need to do in order to to keep that and to do that. But no, they focus in on the unfairness or their perception of unfairness of that twenty percent. Right. Um, and again, bringing that analogy back, it's it's you know eighty percent of of us as humans. Our joys, our fears, our hopes overlap with everybody else. My opinion, mm-hmm. no validated research to do that. And it's this 20%. I would even say it's 90%, you know, and we have 10% difference. I'd, I'd give you a 70% chance that that's correct. All right. So let's talk, <laughs> uh, let's go there because we're talking, thinking probabilistically. And she talked about her fun story about the- The waiter. The waiter. Yeah. I am so happy I found out what happened because <laughs> I was just sitting there. I had read the book. I had heard her in another podcast and I never knew if she got that order right. Yes, she did. She did. She did. <laughs> that, was, that was a conquest. That was a conquest. Yeah, that was good stuff. But we, I mean, since since we read the book, since we were prepping for this, we've started this whole talking and probabilities, and it makes a lot of sense. It does. It actually it resonates with with me in especially the work environment and thinking about um, 
a whole variety of things in my life. It right. has tremendous applicability to think in percentages rather than thinking in this this black or white. Right. And I the interesting part, and I think this was a really good part of the conversation we had with Annie, was this element of how easy it us easy it is for us to because we see, oh, we even might believe in our heads to begin with, oh, that's really a 70% chance, but then it automatically transfers into, all right, well, that's the way it's going to be because 70% or 60%, right? And we talked about the polling uh, numbers for the last election and how quickly people said, well, it's a 70% chance. That means, of course, Hillary's going to win. And we do that. We we tend to as as Annie was saying, you know, anytime that all of a sudden you get above that 50% piece and into the 60s, it's like this automatic f- switch. It is. It's a naturally switch. Naturally switch yeah. to says, oh, well, then that's going to that's happen. That's going to happen. Yeah. And that, in reality, I mean, protect, you know, 60, 40, that's an awful lot of not happenings to right. the happenings, right? So, So it's hard for us to overcome that. But the more that we can talk in those probable terms and and thinking in that way, I think the better we are at being able to, A, perceive the alternative viewpoint, because now that alternative viewpoint is, as we talked about, it's not, it's not attacking our self-identity. It's not saying that you're wrong. It's saying, here's a different viewpoint, and now I can adjust my 80% probability or my 87% probability that people are going to love this, right? Our most engaging one. And I might say, yeah, that, that goes either up or down based on that input. So this leads to, uh, leads my brain to her right versus accurate comment, right? And uh, do you remember that quote, Kurt, of, of, of what she said about right versus accurate, or right does not equal accurate? I really want to make the point that right and accurate are different. And what we are trying to do is to get to accurate, not right. Yeah, and yet right is the easy answer. I mean, that's this is a system one kind of a thing, right? The, the easy answer or the easy question for us to answer is, is am I right? Mm-hmm. It's a much more difficult question to answer is am I accurate or to what degree am I accurate? That's a more difficult question. That takes reflective thinking. Right, that's much harder, and our brains naturally go toward the how can I how can I take this situation and really answer it in an easier way? Well, because we we when we're right, we get all those rewards, right? We get that satisfaction of of feeling like yeah. yes, I am smart. Uh, you know, I was correct in my thinking. I get a little dopamine I, surge. You get a little dopamine surge. You get all of these yeah. factors that come in, and particularly when that gets you know, confounded or, or, or added to this social kind of reinforcement of I am right within my tribe. Yeah. You get a double whammy of that. And I think it's really... Which, which is the, the people who I want to be respected by, right? The tribe who's going to protect me if things go bad. When that happens, now I get this super double reinforcement. You get the super double secret reinforcement. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, I'm, we're, we're, we're well, laughing about yes that. Yes or no? You just, no. <laughs> we're laughing about that, but that is indeed what happens, right? We, we tend to go for what's right because we get those psychological rewards from being right. When we actually get to try to find out if we're accurate, it can actually be painful. There's a loss aversion component right. of that, right? This belief that I held 
actually felt in my gut or my heart or in my head, wherever it was that you feel that now is proven to be inaccurate, not right. Then part of my identity is with that. And so that hurts. So, so instead of, instead of framing it in our own mind as I wasn't right, we could say, well, my prediction wasn't as accurate as I thought it was. Yeah, and that's the probabilistic thinking part, yeah. that thinking in bets, that thinking in percentages. And I loved her component of saying, just ask the person to put to wager on it. Oh, and, oh and, yeah. And how that changes in their mindset. And want to bet. You want to bet, yeah. right? Because when we do that, we automatically change the reward that is coming. So it's not just this psychological reward of being right. Now there is a monetary or an extrinsic component that is added to the intrinsic reward that we get. There is a there's an extrinsic reward. And that can sometimes, I think, have a big influence on actually how we think about these things. Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, in our work with extrinsic, right, we know that intrinsic rewards just in business, are very, very powerful. Very. But we also know that extrinsic rewards are also very powerful. And sometimes you need extrinsic rewards, at least some of the research I've done, to jumpstart the intrinsic motivation. The extrinsic works as a catalyst. As a catalyst. I think in this, that extrinsic reward of having a bet on there, right? The loss aversion of potentially losing that money, the potential gain of gaining some money, that extrinsic component is that catalyst. I saw this in uh, some of the work that I did on goal setting, where uh, individuals who were uh, below quota and uh, had been in sales contests uh, consistently over the years where they couldn't earn unless they got to quota. Right. But they were consistent performers, just not stars. Okay. Right? They're kind of below the middle. The core, as, as Ahern had as said. As Mike Ahern would talk about. And when they had an opportunity to simply compete against themselves and not against the rest of the sales organization and to select a goal that was above and beyond what they had ever done, and they achieved that and they earned, even though it was still below quota, it built up self-confidence it reframed who they are mm-hmm. and uh, allowed them to actually gain ability so that now their baseline, their run rate increased okay. from where they were before, in part because uh, you use this extrinsic reward as a catalyst to get that, that intr- intrinsic um, uh, support and confirmation of confidence and risk-taking. Like, I can do it. I can do it becomes more apparent at that point. So in this situation that thinking in bets or taking, do you want to bet on this, can be that catalyst to actually reframe how somebody thinks about things in general because they're getting the positive reinforcement from that and seeing actually how that works and hopefully getting understanding that that more accurate view of the world lends itself to long-term success, right? And Annie was talking about, look, on the, in the poker on the poker table, I don't want to be right. I want to be accurate because yeah. the more accurate I am, that means I'm going to have success in the long run, right? And just because I, you know, I did all the wrong things, but I I I got the right, you know, flip at the end and I won, it's that resulting component, which again is a whole nother component yeah. that we didn't really get into a lot, but Annie talks a lot about in her book about that component of how we 
we tend to view how good our decision making process is based on the, the result. result. Yeah. And what she was saying is that that's a faulty way of actually thinking about it. It's and inadequate. It, it's inadequate. If you have a number of, of, of chances, right, over and over and over and over again, that might have more validity. However, most of our, many of our decisions are not these things that we get multiple chances to, to really look at, review, and go over. And so the fact that we are looking at results impedes how much information we can gain from the actual decision-making process to determine, was it a good decision-making process or a bad decision-making exactly. process? Exactly. Yeah. So... Oh, I want to talk about meetups before we stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because this, this I ties think, into that. Yeah. Yeah. So this the whole thinking on on having this learning pod component, which again I think is mm, fantastic is in good. in getting those people who can be the Galileo, right? And in point the room with in us. the room to you. And you're talking about these things and you're actually discussing these things with a contract that she talks about of saying our, our our contract with each other isn't this normal social contract of reinforcing, you, making sure you feel good. This isn't going to be a love fest. Right. This isn't that. That this is a contract that we have with each other to point out the accuracy of our beliefs and our actions and understanding that they're going to hold a, a mirror up to us. And that mirror sometimes is going to reflect things back that we may not want to see. But because we have made the contract, that's okay. And then you get rewarded for doing those positive things and saying, thinking in ways that are positive about that. So this is like an accountability meetup. It's an accountability meetup. And so we started Behavioral Grooves as a meetup to gather people together around um, talking about behavioral science and applying that to work and life. And we have had a fantastic component uh, around that. I think there is a cool opportunity to start using meetups or such because I think it's hard yeah. to, to you know ask people who are your friends or people that you're interacting with. It may not be for everybody, but for myself, I know that would be something that might be a little bit difficult. I could probably ask you because you do it regardless. Um, <laughs> well, and <laughs> and you as well. Well, there you go. You, you know, we well, just hold each other accountable. We do. Yes. We do. But I think but the, that... But, the, but, our, but our relationship is not common in that way. Right. And especially with the, the, the folks on our block or, or close family members, it would be... It, it, Although it does happen to some degree with, for instance, my own siblings, right. there is an element of accountability. The, their primary uh, role in my life is to love and support me. Right. On, you know, on, give me the happy thumbs up. It, it reminds me, so when I was doing my dissertation, I, um, as part of this, I had asked my wife um, to be basically an accountability coach for me. And I was all, yep, you know, I need you to do this. I need you to hold me accountable so that I write my dissertation, you know, every week and that I do the page number that I want. And I was all great. You know, this is going to be awesome. And she it's, said, it's a good choice because Aaron's got the chops to do that. But she said, no. <gasps> oh, she said, no, because she said, if I do that, then I become the nagging wife. And I don't want to be the nagging wife. Yeah. I can be your cheerleader. I can be that support person that, again, loves you yeah. and encourages you on. 
But sometimes I don't think you can, we, we forget about that, right? Because even within these groups, even though we have a contract, sometimes those, those boil over and we might not be able to disassociate, oh, they were telling me this in this, but now it's this regular thing. Right, so right. we may not want our best friends or our family members in this. Thus, a meetup to actually just have this accountability group could be a great way of doing that. And I think it's something that we we might be exploring. It might be our next thing beyond Nudge Fest. I think Fest. we should. I think we should. Beyond yes. Nudge Fest. Beyond. Beyond the Nudge, nudge Fest. Nudge-a-rama. Nudge-a-thon. So what else? I, I, you know, Lila was oh, a big part of Lila. this conversation, oh and God. I loved her. Just the respect and awe. I mean, it was it was to a certain degree awe that she had uh, about Whoa. this this you know, woman who changed the trajectory of her life in some ways. Oh, yeah, in Annie's life, yeah, right. yeah. But Lila is a monument to, right. uh, I mean, she's the one that came up with this syntactic bootstrapping yeah. idea, this idea that, that we have a, a language machine, uh, you know, at, yeah. at, at birth. It's yeah. remarkable. It's yeah. absolutely remarkable. That's some interesting components and... and um, the the fact that we didn't go down the rabbit hole around fucking the uh, but in it's the so cool <laughs> in the dictionary, I think was probably my my only regret of the whole thing. But now we can so, we can dig on it right now. So, so. Lila, so I I I, um, I think I mentioned and I'd heard about Lila six or seven years ago, right? And it was all about this learning machine, this right. idea that you know kids have have syntax and they get it and pauses make a difference. And I was completely fascinated by this idea because this helps inform the nature versus nurture. Thing, right. Right. That there is a, a very powerful part of nature when it comes to learning a language. Right. Um, only later did I discover that as a graduate student, she gets assigned to work on, guess what? The dictionary. Okay. This is her assignment. And she's working on it and she's, she's, she's getting all these words and she has to spell them and define them. And she has to decide what's in and what's not. And so she comes across the word fuck <laughs> because it's, it was one of the words that comes up in the list and she's looking at it and she was the one that wrote down the definition and said, yeah, that should be in the dictionary. <laughs> I think that that's... So we've got we've got linguistic graduate students making decisions on what's going you know it's what's not, going into it's the, not the dictionary or not yeah it's not the white bearded you know godlike uh, dudes you know uh, right. that are making these decisions it's people like Lilo and she's in grad school I know. about the fact that in the 1960s and so you got to yes. think that was pretty controversial <laughs> at that time. And so, yeah. just the, the the wherewithal to to pull that off and to do it as a as a young grad student, kind of yeah foretells I think a lot of the rest her, of her yeah, life. Yeah, rest right? of her story. <laughs> Big brass balls. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So absolutely. And again, I think we need to get her on the on on one of our podcasts if it, we can. Yeah. Or or be, with Annie great. even. Yeah, with Annie would be fantastic. Which could be fun. All right. Um, anything else before we get into uh, the the inevitable music conversation? <laughs> no, no. I, I I think that those are the those are the key topics that I wanted to groove on. All right. So I I, I am actually excited about this music conversation because I'm <laughs> I'm leading this at this point. So so one so. of the interesting things that I thought about this conversation was that Annie talked about 
you know, that she she needs to get in and immerse herself in the music, yeah. right? It's not this casual piece. She doesn't listen to music when she's writing because it's not, then it's this distraction for her. And you have the same kind of, yeah. of, of response to that. I, I remember uh, being very young with uh, listening to my parents have a conversation with uh, an adult friend, a woman who seemed very old to me at the time. She was probably in her 50s or something <laughs> That's you know, decrepit like that. <laughs> and she says, oh, you know, I, I, sometimes I just love to meditate with just soothing strings in the background. And I thought that is insane. Like meditation and string music, like, you know, music itself is just so engaging. There'd be no way that I could do something as what I would believe to be at at a very young age, you know, something soothing as meditate while I'm listening to music. That just, that was impossible for me to connect. Interesting because I am exactly the opposite. I, I will put on music to set a mood and to do variety of different things. And I can have the music in the background. If it's music, it's not, again, I will, I will say that there's different types of music and some yeah. music is, is less likely to have that uh, any, background effect. And different acknowledge things. that as yeah. well, right? There were some, yeah. I mean, if particularly if they're great lyricists and, and you're listening and there's a story and then it engages me more, but I mean, definitely music without, you know, a singer involved, even music with a lyricist and singing involved, if it kind of melds into that background, I find that wow. to be this element that kind of sets me into a mood that then I'm able to actually concentrate more on the work that I'm doing. How do you do that? I, Honestly, how how can your brain it, just... See, this is wow. interesting how, how you know, you're not in my tribe. I, I don't know if I can trust anything. <laughs> I have this great recipe for sautéed fish. You know, I just don't believe it. I think, I think it's a piece of crap. <laughs> anyway. It is interesting, though, isn't it? It is. And, and then the other um, thing, so you talked about Alex Shilton. And so the only reason I even knew who Alex Shilton was, was the replacement song. Oh Dude, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Which I remember when I I got that in in college and I was listening to it. I actually went out before the days of Google, right? And I tried to search who Alex Chilton was. Really? Yeah. Wow. And you know, I just he was some 70s, you know, pop star. That was that yeah. what I got out yeah. of that. But and, long before Big Star. And, well, that was know, Big Star. Yeah. yeah. So it, was he, long before all that. He was when it was with the box tops. Yeah, see, I so, I didn't get that in my pre-Google days. So Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, once again, I think we've come to the end of a just a invigorating uh, discussion, and uh, the interview with Annie was just so much fun. It was fun, and thank you, Annie, um, for for doing that. We really appreciate it. And for our listeners, please, if you found this interesting, if it wasn't too long, um, but you found it interesting, please share this with a friend. It'll get me to my 60% so I can win the bet with Tim. You're not going to win that Yeah, bet. I'm going to win that bet. And then uh, <laughs> even if if I don't get to that, um, share this because we think that uh, the more people that are able to listen to, to this, the, the better off the world will be. Let's expand our tribe. We're going to expand the tribe to the entire yes. uh, tribe of the, of the planet. How about that? I love that idea. Okay. And so with that, thank you for listening. Have a great day.